Well, good morning, church. I wish I could be with you today as you are hearing this. Lord willing, I'm on my way back from North Carolina. And so, though I wish I could be with you, giving you the message this morning, we did pre-record this so that uh, we could continue on in our journey in Mark. So, with that, uh, with my greetings from North Carolina, uh, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word, and we're grateful for the fact that you through so many pictures and object lessons like last week and through uh, really direct statements like this week, you care about us enough so that we can, um, we can emulate Christ through the work of your Spirit. And that's what we want now is the work of your Spirit in our midst so that we can understand the dangers that accompany us in ministry, but also so that we can be um, protected just from those dangers and fruitful because of the way that you protect us. And so I pray, Lord, for that awareness, that protection, and we pray for hope in the fruit that you will produce in us as we attend to what you are addressing us and through your word. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by way of context, as you remember last week, Jesus is kind of drawn away from the crowd and is having a conversation with his disciples. That conversation took a couple ebbs and flows, and at the end of last week, really, uh, we ended our sermon in the middle of that conversation. And so verse 42, through, um, through the end of this chapter, which you just heard read, really is just the, the continuation of that same conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Now, last week, Jesus kind of used these two object lessons in order to drive home the point about what it means to be great in the kingdom of God and in service of the king. The first was a child, and that, as I mentioned last week, is going to be an object lesson he's going to pick up again as we get into chapter 10. But he used the object lesson of a child and then the object lesson of one of these, what the disciples viewed as a rival sort of a fellow laborer in the kingdom of God, but not part of the group. And so, as Jesus pointed to and used those two people to help us understand what it meant to be great, um, he's going to use what seems to be one of those object lessons as we pour ourselves into chapter 9, verse 42. He says, right at the very beginning, whoever causes one of these little ones... And in one sense, we would more than likely think that one of these little ones is kind of one of the very short little ones, one of the children. And Jesus is saying in verse 42, whoever causes one of these children who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he was thrown into the sea. That might be the target. That might be who Jesus is referring to right out of the gate. One of these little children that he was just holding and embracing in the last little bit of this conversation. It's also possible, though, because little ones doesn't necessarily have to, re, uh, have to refer to little in height or young in age. It could be that we're talking sort of maybe metaphorically about young believers. And so we're thinking about perhaps those who have been converted into the kingdom, who are following Jesus, who were, from last week, casting out and doing uh, the works of Jesus in Jesus' name, but not fully as mature as the believers were. So we could be thinking of little ones as essentially these like 
impressionable young believers who aren't in the the D crowd of the disciples, but they're still following Jesus. We're not really sure exactly what Jesus means by little ones. But here's what we know. Doesn't verse 42 hit you like a glass of cold water right in the, in the face? Just that refreshing wake up of a moment that makes you realize that when there are others around you that are impressionable, the way you treat them has incredible significance. That splash of cold water is exactly what Jesus intended to give to his disciples, what Mark meant to convey in his letter, and I think the way that the Holy Spirit wants this passage to impact us today. Because what we're going to see in this this long set of verses here, this next set of verses, not so much the contours of Christian ministry like last week, but the dangers in Christian ministry. The fact that we can be trying to serve God And we can be unaware that there are dangers, there are pitfalls waiting for us, minefields really, on the road of ministry that we have to be very, very aware of. If we're not aware of them, then we can really just cause more more problems in the kingdom of God and ultimately in the way that Jesus motivates us in verse 42 as the pattern and then in 43 and the rest of it going forward, not just trouble for others, but trouble for ourselves if we're not aware of the dangers. And so I just want to care for us by being slow and thorough to walk through what these dangers are. So what we're going to do is we're going to take verse 42 and um, we're going to use it as a bit of a, a, a pattern. It's going to articulate this first danger for us. And this first danger really is that we can be betraying our impressionable friends. First danger that we have when we enter into ministry is that we need to be very aware that there are others, the little ones around us, that are impressionable. They're looking to you, following you. This is everything from the way that, that friends relate to each other to the way that parents relate to their own children to the way that families are structured to something like our church where we look around and we realize that we're both climbing up the ladder and kind of looking up to others that are before us, but there are also those that are behind us that are waiting and watching and, and hoping to learn from us. I remember one time when I was at a Boy Scout camp and we were walking through the night because we were going to a big bonfire and it was really somber and we were supposed to be really quiet. But up ahead of us, the, the scout leader who was leading us along this dark path, every now and then you'd hear a... And you'd realize that what he was doing was when he would come to a stump in the path or a stick or something that he would knew he knew would be a pitfall to us, he was kicking it with his foot and... And it would just let you know that, hey, we got a problem here in the path. Just want you to be aware of it. And then what was neat is you'd hear that thumping continue because those who had learned from him would then a few people back in the line, they would thump on the same stump just so that people would know. And that thumping would continue all the way down the line. And I think as we think about it rightly, that's, that's really what Christian ministry looks like in this multi-generational community that we've got in this spot where there are older ones and where there are little ones 
We need to be very aware. This first danger is that there are impressionable ones, little ones around us, and we, if we're not careful, can betray them. Listen again to verse 42. The first part I want you to notice is that it is possible to cause these little ones to sin. Jesus says it this way. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and immediately I read that as a counselor and I feel a little like, wait a second, Jesus, what are you doing? People sin because it's their own responsibility, their own choice. That's true. But Jesus is getting right to the heart of this danger in saying that there are some who are so impressionable, so little, either in age, height, or faith, that when they are around you, you can be a strong temptation. You can be a strong influence because of how impressionable they are, how little they are. They can be caused to sin because of you. And Jesus is going to say something about us if we're in that category. Now remember, he's not talking about false teachers. He's talking to his disciples. And he's talking out there, but he's not necessarily. Sometimes he sees something happen and he's saying, hey, these group, this group of people, man, they are in error. This group of people, they are a danger to you. Let me tell you something about them. And he'll tell a story or use an analogy or something like that. He's not doing that. He's talking to his disciples, to those closest to him, and he's speaking abstractly. He just says, whoever. And whoever this is, and we hearing this, ought to be very aware this could be me. I can cause a little one who's watching and listening and following, I can cause them to sin. That, Jesus says, identifies the person that we're talking about. Whoever does that. Having said that, he says, I want you to know what would be good for him and what would be not so good for him. If he's going to be in that category, now, just understand, he may be popular and in that category. He may be influential and respected and in that category. He may be funny. He may be commended. He may be a lot of things, but if he's in that category, as pleasantly as his life is going, as an influential, respected, popular, funny, engaging teacher, it could be better for him than that. You got to think, man, what could be better than that? It's easy, isn't it? Compare ourselves. Look around and think. Maybe in our church, or maybe out into other churches, or just broadly in other spheres you're in, to think, boy, life would be great if and only if it could fit these categories. If I could be more influential, more funny, more well-respected, more popular. We could think of what life would be better. But no matter how other people perceive you, if at the heart what you're doing is causing a little one to sin, it would be better, Jesus says, if a great millstone were hung around his neck, suddenly it doesn't seem better, does it? 
This millstone isn't just referring to something that humans would use in order to be able to grind up what they were trying to pulverize in the process of having harvested your grain, and now you're trying to grind it all down into a flour that you can use. This is referring not to a millstone that, that we might use, a great rolling pin or something along those lines. This would be a millstone that would be the kind that would be moved by a donkey, by a beast, by an animal, an ox. That kind of a millstone, it would be better for the person influential that way for them to have their neck attached to the millstone and given what would ultimately be one of the Roman punishments of the day, being thrown into the sea. You see why I say this is like that bucket of water? This is like an entire Olympic swimming pool of cold water having been splashed down on us right now. Because if I'm dreaming of this person, this influential person, this, this person who's got game, and it doesn't matter exactly what realm. I've been talking about it kind of as a teacher, but you could be thinking about the most popular person in your friend group. You could be thinking about a beloved member of the family. You could be thinking about that funny teacher at school. You could be thinking about that coach. You could be thinking about, if we just took it all the way out into realms that we're not really even familiar with because most of us don't exist there, but celebrity status, those political spheres or athletic spheres or, uh, you know, singers or artists, actors. There's a lot of folks whose lives you might have dreamt of living. And Jesus says, yeah, things might look good. Let me tell you how it could be better. Throw them in the sea. Why? Because they're little ones that I'm embracing. And they are leading them down a road of ruin and death. And woe to those who do it. What he's saying is that kind of a death would be better than the one being stored up by those who are in ignorance or intentionally betraying their impressionable friends. And the question we got to ask just right out of the gate is, why would tempting God's impressionable little ones lead to such a radically total punishment for an offending believer? Why is it that that would be better? And the only thing you can imagine is if that kind of a death is better, then there must be something far worse than that life is storing up for them. I think we just have to ask a question, having been doused by this, this water. We're, we're alert now. We are listening to Jesus. It's taken one verse, and we're already asking ourselves, Who's following me? Who's watching me? Who's looking at me? And maybe if you have charge over little ones, you've even got to ask that question, who are you allowing your little ones to listen to, to look up to, to be influenced by? Because you know them to be impressionable, and you're saying, yes, listen to their music. Yes, listen to their voice. Yes, follow their way of living. And in some senses, We've got to ask the question that if in doing that, are we then participating in becoming some of these whoever's in verse 42? 
There's a lot of ways our little ones are being led astray. And the question we have to ask, let me just read it for you again, is why would tempting God's impressionable little ones lead to such a radically total punishment for the offending believer? For the one who's offending in this way, why would it be better to have such a swift and total destruction? And you got to think because that kind of offense against the king who cares for the little ones, that kind of offense adds up to and earns a worse punishment and treatment, whatever you want to call it, from the king. Those who would have to endure his wrath, at the moment they are enduring it, would have to say, oh, it would have been so much better if I just had a millstone tied around my neck and been killed immediately. You see moments, if you remember when we were in Revelation together, you remember a moment like this when the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth and some say, just kill me now. Just take me now because this torment is too much. There's a similar sense of what Jesus is saying here. So why is it? I think the only thing that explains it is this. Jesus loves the little children. He was just holding, not just holding, kind of as a display. He was embracing one of these little ones. And either directly or metaphorically, he's saying, don't cause them to sin because I love them. And if you do, you have no idea how angry I could be at you for that. So the question we have to ask, we just have to ask, who's watching me and what are they learning? Who's listening to me and what are they hearing? We're just going to put a pause on that for a minute and we're going to move on because not only does 42 ask us this hard question by alerting us to this first danger that the impressionable ones around us, we can be betraying them, the first danger. It also sets up what we could consider to be a bit of a pattern. Now, look at the way this pattern plays out. If I just laid this verse all the way across the top, you'd read it from left to right. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be Better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. Now, in order for this pattern to work, I'm just going to pull a little Yoda on us for a minute, and I'm just going to switch two and three there for a second so that it sounds a little bit more like this. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, if a great millstone were hung around his neck, better would it be for him and he'd be thrown into the sea. So just use that as a little bit of a pattern. But what I want you to see is there's this question of the source. Who's, what's the, the real danger? That's sort of our first column. There's a solution. In this case, the problem is that somebody's teaching somebody to sin. And the solution is throw them into the sea, tie the millstone around the neck. And then there's this comparison. It's better for this than for this. So the reason what that, do, what that does is it sets up for us the fact that it's not just because it would be so easy if we only had one danger. It's not just, though, that other people can lead us to sin. So now, having looked at the little ones, let's take our perspective as a little one. If we are caught in sin, is it enough for us to say, 
Well, the people you put in my life, they're the ones who caused me to sin. And so I'm sort of absolved of all responsibility for my sin. Well, let's just look back all the way to the beginning and ask, how did that work for Adam? And how did that work for Eve? Not very well. <laughs> Was Adam influenced? Yes. Was Eve influenced? Yes. Were they absolved? No. And the second danger that we see isn't so much just that we've potentially could be betrayed by those to whom we were supposed to look for an example, but also that we could befriend our own internal enemies. The second danger on this path of greatness, this path towards greatness in the service of the king, is one, that we can influence those who are watching us, but two, we can ignore the problems within us. And so Jesus in verses 43, 44, and 45 is going to ask kind of the same question here. He's going to look at sort of the same problem, and he's going to help us just kind of unpack this a little bit. So he uses the same pattern, and we just see this here in verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, so here's the problem, right? Source of the problem. Here's the solution. Cut it off. Why? Here's the comparison. It's better to enter life crippled than it is, he says, with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable, unquenchable fire. So, source, you have a hand that is causing you to sin. Solution, cut it off and throw it away. Why? Because here's the comparison. Going in crippled is better than going in with two hands. Why? Because going in crippled would lead to life, and going in with two hands, one of which was causing you to sin, would actually lead to the unquenchable fire. He says something very, very similar in verse 44. If your foot causes you to sin, he says, cut it off. It is better to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Do you start to see the pattern here? Whoever causes the little one to sin, millstone. Why? Here's a comparison. If you have a hand that's causing you to sin, you ought to cut it off. Why? Here's a comparison. Now he says the same thing about a foot. If you have a foot that is causing you to sin, same solution, cut it off. And he says, why? Because it's better to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Sort of the same language, therefore, being thrown into the sea. Verse 45 uses a different body part, but makes the same point. And he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell which he then describes and says, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So, there we are. Verses 42 to 45. And the question that we have to ask is, how serious is Jesus about this? And almost every time, basically in every commentary that I read, and every year when I would look at this in the Sermon on the Mount with the kids that I would teach, 
I had to be able to tell them, guys, I'm not encouraging you to go home, go find your dad's chop saw, and just, you know, get it going. Because obviously, one, that could get me a little bit into trouble if one of the kids took me literally. But two, we just want to make sure that there's a point that, okay, hey, just so you're aware, Jesus isn't being serious here. He doesn't want you plucking out eyes, cutting off butts, or feet and cutting off hands. He doesn't want you tearing out and cutting off and cutting off. And I spent so much time saying, no, this is a bad idea. But let's just ask the question. Let's just ask the question and take this literally for a second. What would be, to use Jesus' words, better? If somebody heard this and said, well, clearly he's not talking about my hands or my feet or my eyes, I'm not really sure exactly what he's talking about, so I'm going to keep both of my hands, keep both of my feet, keep both of my eyeballs, and I'm going to keep going on and living exactly the way that I live. That person has no limitations for the rest of their life, no problems really for the rest of their life, at least in terms of their eyes, hands, and their feet. They go through life whole, and at the end of their days, they wind up in hell. That seems pretty good. Or does it? Because it's the end of the story that reverses everything for us, isn't it? Because in that same scenario, let's say somebody else heard me and decided, oh wow, I'm really going to take Jesus literally. And I'm aware my eyes look in places that they shouldn't. And so I'm going to gouge one out as a perpetual reminder to be careful with my eyes. And I have been prone to sinning with my hands. I've beaten people up. I've stolen things. I could list the ways that I've used my hands for, for my own gain. And so I am going to take Jesus seriously and I'm going to radically eliminate my hand so that I'm not as prone to sin. And I'll go through life just having the left and I, all my signatures are going to be weird and I'm going to be limited so much and, and I won't be able to text anymore. And I'm going to hop around for the rest of my life because I realize I've followed my feet in some really dark paths and I've walked away from Christ and I want to remember that I need to follow him and so I'm going to lop off a foot. Somebody walks into church, no eye, no hand, no foot. We don't necessarily envy them we don't necessarily even applaud them. We might even mock them because of the limits that they've placed over their lives. But at the end of the day, they enter into life. They enter into the kingdom of God. They ultimately live and thrive and enjoy God because they had a reminder over the rest of their days that it was worth not looking everywhere they wanted to look, taking everything they wanted to take and going everywhere, everywhere that they wanted to go because they wanted to follow Jesus, they wanted to labor for Jesus, and they wanted to watch and read and study what would help them understand and know and love Jesus better. So let me say this. Given those two scenarios, given those two ends, and given that comparison... Jesus is telling you to cut off your hands, your feet, and your eyes if they cause you to sin. Why? Because crippling yourself, laming yourself, and blinding yourself is better 
if it doesn't lead you to your eternal destruction. Following Christ with limitations is better. We are called to this radical type of evaluation of our lives and radical response to the radical words of Jesus if we will radically follow him to a radically superior future. So rather than talking about what this verse doesn't say, what it doesn't mean, and what it wouldn't cost us, how about we just explore what it really means for it to be taken seriously in our lives. So let's take these words and let's ask them and let's evaluate them and let's realize the first column here calls us to be radically suspicious because anybody who says someone has two hands sees that as a benefit over somebody who has only one hand. One hand is worse than two. Why? Because everybody knows, just like having two feet and two eyes, you need to have two hands. But Jesus is saying, maybe the things you think make your life better are actually dangers in your life, and you should be radically suspicious about the ability you have to walk anywhere in life, see anything in life, and grab anything in life. What if we are being called, and I believe we are being called, to take radical stock of our lives and be radically suspicious of all the comforts and all the benefits and all the conveniences we loaded into our lives because some of them are calling us to flee Jesus. Some of them are calling us calling us to ignore Jesus, not to study who he is, not to be able to use our hands to serve, but to grab and to, and, and to just build our lives around us. But we say, and we teach our kids, whatever makes you more comfortable is therefore better. And Jesus says, is it? It might not be. Every convenience might not be better. Every comfort might not be better. Every piece of tech might not be better. Every new group of friends might not be better. Every opportunity to promote yourself and be promoted at work might not be better. Everything that makes you feel more comfortable might actually make you more in danger of your eternal death. So, will we be radically suspicious? Second question. Second column doesn't just call us to be radically suspicious. It calls us to be radically surgical. Look at what Jesus says to do. Nine words. Cut it off. Cut it off. Tear it out. Six words. Three of them repeated. So that thing you're thinking about. Kill it. End it. That relationship that's coming to mind, cut it off. That pattern you've built into your rhythms of your life, tear it out. That group of friends you've been hanging with, get rid of it. What you know is causing you to sin needs to be radically and surgically removed now. Not later, 
This isn't anything of a negotiation. He says, if, 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 then, then, then. If your hand causes, if your foot causes, if your eye causes, does it, then end it. That's column one and column two. We are called to be radically suspicious of those things leading us from Christ and radically surgical about the way that we are supposed to respond to them. Why? Not because God hates you. Not because he delights in your inconvenience. Not because stoic Christianity where life is just more uncomfortable is therefore more godly. It's because God always chooses to replace what we get rid of with something better. He says that kind of crippled and lamed and blinded eye is radically superior than two hands, two feet, and two eyes in hell. If we will enjoy the kind of radical salvation, radical enjoyment, then we need to be willing to see God as radically superior so that we are then radically suspicious and radically surgical over those things that we need to purge from our lives. That's it. That's what he says. So, let me ask you some questions. We've already asked, why would tempting little ones lead us to this kind of... But in thinking through the second danger, this danger that we can befriend what are ultimately our internal enemies, let me ask you the four questions that just kind of emerge from this chart in my mind. First is this. What are the hands, feet, or eyes in your life whose loyalty you need to be more radically suspicious of? What practices, what tech, what people? What have you built into your life that you need to start questioning its loyalty to you? Because in one sense, what Jesus is saying is, you're the little one! You are the little one, and you are impressionable to where your feet take you, where your hand, what your hands can get for you, and what your eyes see that you want to get. You are impressionable. When I hear Christians say, I can do that because I can handle it, I just want to go and say, I don't think you can. I'm not sure you can absorb that and stay as radically devoted to Jesus. So what are the hands, feet, and eyes whose loyalty that you need to be more radically suspicious of that God has been calling your attention to as we've been looking at this? Maybe, in fact, you could jot it down. Take a second. Okay, this is more awkward for you than it is for me. All right, so there it is. That one thing, let's think about it. Question two, or technically question three. What would it cost to entirely cut these off in your life starting today? 
if, in fact, the thing that has come to mind, maybe it's more than one, but these hands, feet, and eyeballs that need to be gouged out, torn out, cut off, what would it cost you to do that? Because Jesus is not minimizing how radical this kind of surgery would be. Limping along through life, being less dexterous and capable through life, being less aware through life is costly. But what would it cost you to entirely cut these off in your life starting today? Question four, the third of this section. Why are you currently negotiating the safe return of these tempting necessities when Jesus said it would be better to be without them? Because that's what's happening right now. That thing that you wrote down that you're thinking about, and I'm saying, what would it cost to cut it off? You are now saying in your mind, it actually wouldn't be better that I was without it. It would be better if I had it. I want to actually come up with maybe some sort of a bartering system with God. Maybe we can enter into some negotiating tactics that wouldn't call for such a radical solution here because you say it's causing me to sin. I say maybe it's just suggesting sin. Maybe I'm not quite as a little one as you think. Maybe I'm not quite as impressionable as you think. Why are you doing that? You already know it is causing you to sin. It is leading and tempting you to sin. You are impressionable to its influence. So despite what it costs, why are you negotiating the safe return of what you've considered to be a necessity? Do you see the folly of what was already happening in your mind as we're talking about this? Because Jesus says, following me is like a man who was stumbling across a field and found a treasure buried in the middle of it. But in order to get it, he had to buy the field and he didn't have enough. But he did some calculating and realized that if he sold absolutely everything he had, he could be all in, get the field and have the treasure. And Jesus said, that's what it's like. Jesus said, you can't have two masters. You serve me, or you serve whatever this other thing is. Not both, just one. You choose. But, having made that choice, we find at the end of our days that there's no one who would ever say, wow, that was a bad decision. Those who have sold it all in order to possess Christ, they cry out at the end of their days, all I want from here going forward is the ever-increasing joy of knowing Jesus, not the ever-increasing regret of all the stuff I gave up in order to possess him. The last question, though, is this. Do you know anyone whose lifestyle of sinful addictions is currently barreling them down the road to hell, and do you care? Because the same 
choices, the same freedom that Christ offers you from that which has been controlling you, causing you to sin, leading you toward an eternal destruction, that which he's freed you from, he is now sending you out as an ambassador to those who are also addicted, also currently under the influence of, and also barreling down towards a road of their own destruction. And he's saying they just need to hear just like you do. That's all. So do you care? I want us to care more. So let's pray to that end. Father, we're so grateful for your love for us. I'm grateful that even in a context like this, I can still unpack your word with your church. We belong to you. And we want more of us to belong to you. And so I pray, Father, that you would give courage and faith for us to give up whatever has been causing us to sin. And then send us as free men and women, free boys and girls to be able to share the good news that the Savior's come to free us with those that are still enslaved. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.